I just want to get right to it. I am thankful for the opportunity to, as Harry would say, make an installment this morning uh, into your hearts and into your minds. As students of the Master and students of His Word, uh, it's been on my heart for some time to preach in the category of really leaving earth behind and grasping onto heaven. Uh, I feel like uh, what bogs the church down, what bogs our own lives down oftentimes is distractions, even good distractions, probably mostly good distractions that weigh down our hearts and distract us from the ultimate goal, which is Christ himself. And as I was thinking about a passage, I, I, I was led to Philippians 3, so you can go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. We'll be studying verses 17 through 21 in our time together. You may have heard this phrase, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. You heard that? Imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. Meaning that if I copy someone, it means I respect the way they live, how they talk, uh, how they perform perhaps. Uh, to, to imitate an artist, to imitate a parent, to imitate a pastor, to imitate a leader, whatever it might be, it means that I respect, I, I, I value what they value if I copy them. And in a world where individualism is seen as probably <laughs> the essence of what we should attain, it might not be too uh, familiar to us or even flattering to us to imitate or to copy or to mimic. Those probably aren't words that are high on our list often. It even seems uh, copying, imitating seems elementary, uh, perhaps even boring to not be yourself or to not be uh, who you think you should be or to become uh, the best version of yourself. Copying someone these days is certainly unoriginal. But in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he says to do just that. In 317 through 21, he's going to give them uh, really instruction of how to copy the right example and how to beware of the enemies of the cross of Christ and also to look forward to the new body that we'll receive in heaven. I want to get right to it and give you that first heading is to imitate the right examples. But underneath that, I want to look at what exactly is the right example? What are we looking for? So if we're supposed to imitate Paul or imitate those who follow after Paul or who are like Paul, what exactly are we looking for? Let's read 317 through 21, and then we'll jump out from there. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. According to Paul, who we keep our eyes on 
is one of the most important aspects of walking this walk, of living this life. So I want to draw our attention this morning to where are our eyes? Who are we following? Who are we copying? Who are we imitating? Paul's going to give us those values here, and he already has to the Philippians in the first few chapters, and so I want to peruse that to see what we can understand is within that example. And first thing is this, to imitate the right example. Imitate those who are thankful, joyful, and content. Paul would say that to the Philippians. Imitate those. You want to be like Paul? Who was Paul? Paul was thankful. Paul was joyful. Paul was content. This whole letter is filled with with all kinds of examples, but I want to point to a couple. He starts off with this. Go over to chapter 1. And we'll be, we won't be flipping around a whole lot, but we will be in the book of Philippians. Hopefully you'll, you'll understand this book as a whole better this morning. Look at verse 12. This is where he starts off. After being, uh, giving a thanksgiving and, and uh, a prayer for the Philippians, he goes right into saying, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So prison, Paul's in prison, and that ends up being a good thing. Look at another example right below that in verses 15 through, 7, or 15 through 18. He says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul has, he'll, will later say in chapter 4, rejoice always again, I will say rejoice. And you think, how do, I, how do I get there? How do I, sometimes we focus in on chapter 4 and we're just trying to understand chapter 4 in its, in its own context and then try to almost imitate or mimic Paul there. But he begins, obviously, much before that. In chapter 1, he's saying, look, with, with an earthly perspective, with an earthly perspective, yeah, prison stinks. Prison isn't the place I chose to be. But with a heavenly perspective, he's saying, it's okay. It's all right. It's actually working out. Even if the whole imperial guard hadn't come to Christ or hadn't known about Christ, it would still be okay for Paul. He could rejoice in this circumstance knowing that God has put him in prison. Not, it was not solely up to man. So with his heavenly eyes, he sees prison as advancing the gospel, not detracting from the gospel. Same with the, the verses below that. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Paul, how can you celebrate that? How can you be okay with someone preaching Christ out of selfish ambition? Aren't you going to get after that? He says, in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, that's on them. The pretense is on them. But either way, Christ is proclaimed. What am I rejoicing in? That Christ is proclaimed. The gospel is advancing. Flip over to chapter 4, actually. We'll hit that really quick. One of the most famous passages in Philippians, perhaps, is the rejoice always in 4 to, four to 7. Then he tells us what to think about in, in 8 and 9. 
But then lastly, he says in 10 to 13, to, uh, 10 to 13, let me read that. I rejoice in the Lord greatly now that length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned, keyword, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What can he do? All things through him who strengthens, through, through him who strengthens. What is that? It's learning a contentment, a joyfulness, a thankfulness in any and every circumstance. That's who, student this morning, that's who you should follow. Someone who's thankful, someone who's joyful, someone who's content. That's what Paul is telling the Philippians Hey, if you want to follow me as I follow Christ, he said that. Join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. What is that example you have in us? First and foremost, it's flipping prison upside down in a sense. It's seeing it with a heavenly perspective. What is it when people preach out of rivalry and and selfish ambition? It's flipping that upside down, saying it's not about that. It's that Christ is proclaimed. Is it about how much I have in, in prison or how much, how much I'm being supplied or how much my friends are becoming, coming around me in prison? Nope, it's not about that either. I know how to go without and I know how to actually thank the Lord when I have plenty to go around. That's what Paul is saying to the Philippians through his example. And we often look at Philippians to see, uh, to address the anxiety that we see in ourselves, don't we? We see that passage in 4 to 7. I know that's been often an encouragement to me to stop worrying, stop overthinking things and get on my knees and give it to the Lord, right? That's, the, that's that passage in a nutshell. But why do we complain? Why aren't we thankful? Why are we not joyful? Why are we discontented individuals? Why are we unstable and insecure? Why do we worry? What are we anxious about? Why are we trying to hold on to some shred of ourselves? It's because we have not come to know Christ as Paul had known Christ. Every time I worry, it's because I'm forgetting Christ. It, it replaces my faith, in a sense. Worry replaces my faith. Not the faith, but faith in that circumstance. Would you be stable, student? Would you be stable? You want to be. I want to be, right? Rejoice. Be thankful. Be content. Follow those who would lead you in that direction. Number two, under imitating the right example, you're going to see very quickly in Paul's writings, in Paul's example, that he was willing to suffer. Imitate those who suffer. We can't get very far into Christianity and before we hit this look over at chapter 1 verse 27 verses 27 through 30 chapter 1 27 through 30 before i read that you remember how the philippian church was started in act 16 remember that story after preaching to lydia she was converted then he cast out the demon and that girl and that caused an unjust imprisonment and a beating of him and Silas, and around midnight, Paul and Silas are 
singing and praising God. Praying, praying and, and singing. That's what they're doing at midnight after their backs are bleeding. Okay? Just imagine that picture. Being beat for the gospel, unjustly thrown in prison. And yet, what comes to Paul's mind, what comes to his mouth, it's thankfulness in that situation. That's how the Philippian church was started. And then literally an earthquake from God blew the doors off of the prison and unshackled those prisoners. That was nothing other than a miracle from God himself that let Paul go for the sake that that jailer would freak out, want to take his own life, and Paul stop him and say, hey, it's okay. That jailer is very likely reading this letter, the Philippian letter. That jailer in his household would have received this letter from Paul saying, hey, prison is okay. And there's a heavenly perspective to that. Next, that suffering is a part of Christianity. You saw what I went through. Now, look what he says in verse 27 through 30. Only let your life, your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now listen to this, verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Literally, they saw Paul in prison and now they hear of him in prison again. You think about his ministry to uh, Asia Minor on one of his first missionary trips. He returns and it says that he was going to encourage them and in Acts 14, 22, it says he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. How do you encourage someone in the faith? you tell them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Why is that so strange to us? Hey, if you're going to follow Christ, I just want you to know that through many tribulations, that's how we're going to enter the kingdom of God. Student, I want to level with you this morning and tell you that life, life, you will suffer. Life is hard. You will suffer. And that will be a test of the genuineness of your faith. I think sometimes we, we forget about that in today's Christianity. That it's supposed to be about serving the Lord and dedicating our life to Him and doing big things for God, and yet we forget that there's a low road to Christianity. There's a humility that is what we're actually called to. And that is going to be tested over and over. He says, for it's not just granted that you should believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. One thing I want you to turn to, go over to 2 Timothy under this heading. Go, go to 2 Timothy, and as we see Paul remind this young pastor, the really just the realities of, of ministry itself, but also being left alone in Ephesus, Chapter 1 of 2 Timothy, verse 8. 
we can kind of pick up a little bit on, per, on Timothy's struggles, Timothy's personality, when you look at what Paul wrote to him. Timothy 1.8, 2 Timothy 1.8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul's imprisoned again, possibly the same imprisonment as he writes from Philipp, or to the Philippians. But, don't be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Skip down to verse 12. Actually, 11, which is, I, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Go down to verse 3 of chapter 2. Timothy, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. This is Paul's example. Go back to Philippians 3. This is Paul's example to the Philippians that suffering is an everyday part of Christianity. If you want a neat little cross-reference, you can go to 2 Corinthians 6. It's not always the big, crazy beatings for Christ, imprisonment for Christ, shipwrecked for Christ. It's the little things. Patience knowledge, genuine love, he says. Those are all sufferings for Christ. What would I naturally want to do in any of those situations? To be impatient, to be selfish, to lean on my own understanding rather than God's understanding. Every time we obey Christ, in a sense, it's little s suffering because you're cutting against the flesh that wants to do its own thing. And that's what wears people out over time. That's what wears faith out if it's not genuine, is it's just not worth obeying Christ anymore for some. That gets hard. Obedience gets tough. There are harder things to obey. There are, there's a longer stretch of obedience, and that wears if, if faith is not genuine. So he says, who are you to imitate? Those who suffer. A third point Imitate those who are selfless. Imitate those who are selfless. You want to know who to imitate? Somebody who empties his, himself or herself for other people. That's who you need to imitate. Three, two, three quick examples, very obviously set, a, set apart for us in chapter 2. We can look there. Let's go backwards, though. Let's start with Epaphroditus in 2, 25 through 30. Rather than read that whole thing, we'll just skip down. Epaphroditus is the one who brought this letter to the Philippians. And in verse 30, Paul, or 29 and 30, Paul is saying how to treat this kind of guy. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Why? For he nearly died for, this, for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There's Epaphroditus as a, as a walking example for the Philippians. He's going to be what he is with them currently. And Paul sent, them, sent him to the Philippians so that they would have an example. This is one of those examples that they have like Paul. Skip, go backwards to verse 20, chapter 2, verse 20. Speaking of Timothy. Timothy's still with Paul, but Tim, he wants to send Timothy to the Philippians. Why? For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Verse 21, for they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? 
They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's because that, that's a familiar passage in 2, 1 through 11. We're not going to read that whole thing, but keep going backwards. Who's our ultimate example? Probably the most famous passage in Philippians is 2, 1 through 11. Christ. Christ. He was selfless. He went, he went so far down that he obeyed God all the way to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's how selfless Christ was. That's how obedient Christ was, is that he went all the way. Timothy, yes, doesn't seek his own interests. Epaphroditus, yes, he's willing to risk his life. Christ, definitely, gave his life for all of us, for the Philippian, for us. Let's go to a fourth point. Imitate those, it's very closely connected to this, imitate those who are letting go of this life. If I could really press home two points this morning to be the next to imitate those who are letting go of this life. There's a, there's, a, there's a connection here between chapter two where Christ does it and there's a, the, the connection in chapter three where Paul is doing that, self-emptying. Christ, it says in chapter two, verse six, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of men. That's what Christ gave up. Christ gave up God's status to become a man. He set aside rightful things to become a man in order to serve us. You look over at chapter three, you're gonna see the same thing. Paul gives a list of what he used to boast in, that he used to put confidence in the flesh. Three, one through seven. But then in verse, verse 7, he says this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And he goes on from there. Imitate those, students who are letting go of this life, not trying to hold on to it, not scrapping for their little piece of some kind of identity, some kind of mark on earth, some name. Let go of that. Seek to imitate those who are letting go. Letting go of themselves, in a sense. Letting go of personal preservation letting go of the, the perfect relationship of earthly values, letting go of self-distinctiveness. Follow those people. Fo follow those who, instead of drawing you closer into yourself, would help you let yourself go and follow Christ. And I don't mean let yourself go as in be a slob. You know I'm not saying that, but just for clarity's sake... <laughs> Okay, for maybe the, <clears throat> those watching online. Okay, not let yourself go, but in a sense, stop clinging to what Christ is saying. Hey, if you want to follow me, you've got to give up yourself. That's what Paul is saying. Follow that example. Let go of your own hanging on to the steering wheel of your own life. Let that go. Let Christ take over. That's what Paul is saying. You need to follow that kind of person who is not 
clinging on to some kind of preservation of the self, but he has already sacrificed himself and sinful desires, and from now on, he's living for Christ. Think about these hymns. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood when I survey the wondrous cross. We sang this last Friday before we left. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Really? Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high king of heaven, my treasure, thou art. Sober words. And that's what Paul is saying. Follow those who will put no confidence in the flesh. Follow those who would be this next point. That is, imitate those who concentrate on Christ. Imitate those who concentrate on Christ. If there's one thing to be said this morning, it's this. Follow men and women whose full concentration is on Jesus Christ himself. Certainly not themselves, but not even a Christianized version of an American dream or doing the right things or being a good kid or whatever that even means or just simply obeying Christ in an earthly perspective. It's not just grinding things out for the sake of obedience, but it's the concentration of the man, of the woman, is on, yes, letting go of earthly things, but seeking a heavenly reward. You see this all over the New Testament. I think of Hebrews 12, 2, where it says, Christ, for the joy set before him, how do you endure the cross? For the joy set before him. That's why he endured the cross. It was before him, it was he was seeking, he was seeking a heavenly reward. I want you to notice a few things about Paul's personal life. I really think the whole, the high point of the book is chapter three. Chapter three, one through 16, is where the most Christological, dense passage in almost all the New Testament. But it really helps you understand the guts of how Paul thinks. In verses 12 through 16, I want to read that. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. What are you talking about, Paul? That he fully knows Christ. Yes, he wants to, but he's going to quickly admit, I haven't reached that yet. So, back to verse 12, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Quickly under this heading of concentrating on Christ, Paul has his aim in the right place. Right? His aim is knowing Christ himself. His stat, he's traded his status, verse 7, 3, 7. He's traded his status, everything he thought was awesome and defining of a great person, before he said, you know what, that equals, the, a great translation for the word r rubbish is actually sewage. That would be a modern vernacular, it's sewage. 
It's just everything, the, the worst possible, lowest, uh, uh, there's no value in it at all. That's what Paul is saying. That's how, I val- that's how I see those things now. So his aim is now Christ. Look at also his motivation. This is key, students. Look at Paul's motivation in verse 12. As he concentrates on Christ, why is he relentlessly pursuing Christ? What's the answer? Look, look at verse 12. I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. If anything should encourage you this morning, student, to persevere, to be motivated to follow Christ and Christ alone, it is that Christ, it literally the word is apprehended or attached or clung onto to be grasped. Christ has got that death grip, in a sense, on Paul and not letting go. That is what motivates Paul through thick and thin to pursue Christ. And if you don't know that this morning, it is very difficult, you, yea, verily, impossible to pursue Christ if you don't know he has a grip on you. And I, and, 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 and I reflect that, you reflect that, everyone reflects that theology. If I don't think God knows, I don't think God cares, if I'm not sure, then I kind of get to write my own script. I get to fill in the blanks because God is absent in so many things. But if I know that Christ knows me and that he has grasped onto me, then that makes me, that motivates me to drive toward him. That fuels my worship. That fuels my obedience. That fuels my perseverance. That is what he's saying here. Knowing that Christ has got him was what passionately motivated him to press on in the faith. You have to know that this morning, student. You have to know that. When you're weary, when you're weary, go back to Christ's grip on you. Do you hear that? When you're weary in the fight, when you're weary in the walk, go back to remembering. Why do we love? Because he first loved us. Go back to reminding yourself of the one who first loved us. Under concentrating on Christ, look at, look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do. Life is so much more simple when we reduce the priorities and boil them down to fewer and fewer and fewer things. For Paul, it was one thing with two subsets, if you will. Forgetting what lies behind, meaning I don't, it doesn't mean he just forgets about everything in his life, but what gave him identity, what gave him value, what gave him fuel or motivation or that pursuit, he's not, he's saying, even up to my very present, I'm not looking to those things. And it's not just talking about in one through seven where he's, where he's saying, this is who I was before the cross. Yes, it includes that, but also it includes that time between the Damascus Road experience and now. Paul is saying everything, everything up to this point, I'm not using that as some kind of attainment status. 
that, that, helps, me, that, that helps motivate me. In other words, he's, not, he's saying, it's not how far I've come, and it's not how far I still have to go. That's not what he's concentrated on. He's not concentrating on distance. Distance that he's traveled, distance that he has to travel. He's not saying that. What motivates him? He forgets what's behind him, and he strains forward to what's ahead. The goal is what motivates him. It's not the distance. It's not the journey. It's not the path. It's not the obstacles or the lack thereof. That's not what gives him energy. You've got to remember, he's the one that said, be thankful in all circumstances. And he says in chapter 4, rejoice always. He knows how to be, he knows how to be well off. Many of us don't know how to be well off. We forget about God. On the, on the flip side, he knows how to go without. Paul is saying, he, Paul is concentrated on Christ even though distractions to suck him away abound. Student, be careful of good distractions. Be careful of good, it's okay, it's not wrong, distractions. If you let distra- anything other than Christ himself fill your life, Christian fellowship, use of your gifts, evangelism, the, high, the, highest, the highest things of Christian ministry, whatever that is to you. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a career. Maybe it's who knows what. Maybe it's very simple, like a good cup of coffee. Be careful that distractions don't fill your life. I think of what Christ said in the parable of the soils. Remember what he said about the, the, one, the seed that fell on thorny ground? Remember it fell around. What did the thorns represent? What were the thorns and thistles? Over time, over time, the thorns and thistles choked out the growth. It wasn't that it was necessarily bad seed. It was bad soil. He concentrates on one thing, a single goal that frees him up to concentrate on attaining Christ. His passion is also seen, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This wasn't a smug overconfidence where saying, hey, now I've got it. I can just put my legs up and relax. Or he's not saying, you know what, I've got it. So now I don't have to pay attention to that anymore and I can just do my own thing. It's interesting that the love of Christ, knowing Christ, kept Paul on that spirit-led path, not leaning on his laurels, if you will, not leaning on his attainments, nor saying, I don't need to finish this thing, kept him both from a legalistic leaning in verses 1 through 7 where he said, oh, I counted all that rubbish, nor what he's about to say in verse 18 and 19, saying it kept me from swerving off the path. Many times Paul says in his letters, these, this guy or that guy or these two guys, whatever, he a lot of times does them in pairs, they've Swerve. They've gone off track. They've shipwrecked their faith. His passion for knowing Christ keeps him, keeps him on track. And I want to turn the corner to something perhaps even more sobering, and that is verse 18 and 19. After looking at who we should imitate, Paul further 
wants to draw a clear line between who we should imitate and who we should avoid. Who we should even see, not just like, oh, hey, they're, you know, they're kind of a fuzzy, you know, uh, you know warm and cuddly, but, but not really that bad. Paul immediately says, here's a whole group of people that are enemies, enemies of the cross of Christ. Not just, hey, they're clueless, or they don't know what they're doing, or they're just, they're not getting it yet. He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ. Verses 18 and 19. For many, I wish it said fewer, but it says many. For many of whom I have often told you, obviously he's communicated this to the Philippians before, and now tell you, even with tears, this isn't something he's mocking, this isn't something that's lighthearted to Paul, this is something that's breaking his heart because he knows their first and their last name. He knew, he knew these people. He knows the crowd he's talking about in verse 18. I tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Obviously using the same word in verse 17, who walk according to the example you have in us and who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Again, student, it's no small thing who you imitate. It's no small thing who you have your eyes upon. Paul would say, you're either in or you're out. You're either on a path of upward ascendance to Christ himself or you're on a path that descends downward. Look at the first point, their end. What is their end? It's destruction. Not just like, oops, I messed up life. Oops, life got harder. Oops, I've stumbled a few times. Things didn't work out. I've messed things up. Life has become messy. That's not what the word destruction means. This means eternal destruction. This means they're done. This means they're on the downward path to hell itself. That's what he's saying. They're walking down that path. Not just a cute little, I'm going to mess things up or I'm confused for a while kind of path and everything will all work out in the end before I die. He's saying these people are headed straight into hell. And it's, it's, it's easy to, to see the description of these enemies in verse 19. Their end, their God, their glory, and their mind. It's really simple to see. Look at it in verse 19. First of all, their end. Beginning with the end in mind, he's saying, I want you to know right out of the gate that these people are headed in the wrong direction the opposite direction of where you're going. So why would you follow someone who's headed in the opposite direction of you? Their end is destruction. Secondly, their God. What does that mean? Their God is their appetite or their God is their belly. I don't think he's saying anything about the, the Judaizers here. Not at all. Even though there's, there, there, you could do some math to get there, perhaps. But I think it's most obvious that he's talking about those who have known about the gospel, the true gospel, and walked away. Following what? Following Christ? No. Following others who follow Christ? No. What ultimately is their God? What drives them at the end of the day? Their appetites. 
their cravings. You know what their functional God is, Paul is saying? It's whatever they want to do. In other words, he could be saying their God is their feelings. That would be a great translation in 2018. Their God is their feelings. Their God is their gut. Their God is what they just feel like they should do. This is the most easy and natural approach to life. This is the easiest God to follow. Do you know that, student? The easiest God to worship is your own feeling, is your own gut, is your own desires, it's your own belly, your cravings, your appetites. Paul says you want to know who to avoid? It's those who follow their feelings. It's those who do what they want to do. What do you want to do? Who do you want to be? What do you think is right? Well, then just do it. Fill in the blank. That's who Paul is saying, avoid that person at all costs. Those are enemies of the cross. Someone who's going to, when they counsel you, is going to direct you more toward your own desires, earthly desires, I should, I should correct myself, earthly desires, Stay away from them. I would, I would say what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says in verse, chapter 3, verses 12 to 14, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Student, you have to change your God in order to follow your desires. When I've seen this, when I've seen someone on the verge of apostasy, and when I've, wit I've been a witness, I've been a, have, had a front row seat to someone walking away from the faith, I've always found there to be a craving for sin, a craving for their own desires in the first place. God has got to get out of their way in order for their true God to show. I say that with all sobriety, that there's people that have not checked their own desires in their heart of hearts, and in time, trial has pushed them away from the faith. Why? Because their God was never God. Their God is their belly. Here's another descriptor. They glory in their shame. That's what we see around us, right? That's what we see in this world. We see celebration of sin rather than shame. We see, we see those who would turn hate into love and love into hate. We see people taking pride and making great boasts in sin itself rather than humbly repenting. That's what it means to glory in shameful things. Look at where their mind is at. Paul loves this word. He uses it ten times in Philippians with minds set on earthly things. Reminds us of Colossians 3, 2, right? If you've been, now that you're with Christ, set them on heavenly things. It's a complete opposite. It's a mind set on earthly things, just consuming what earth offers I want to warn you again, be careful of Christianized earthly aspirations. Be careful of Christianized 
earthly aspirations. If your aim, if your goal, if your prize is below the horizon, if it's on anything that you can see, anything on earth, if it's not Christ himself, it's too low. I don't care if it's ministry. It doesn't matter if it's pursuing a godly person. It doesn't matter if it's being in godly fellowship. It doesn't matter if it's even serving the Lord with my own career. If it's not Christ himself, it's too low. It's below the horizon. And he's saying, watch out because people with minds set on earthly things, all right, it'll drag you away. Careful of your expectations, student. Be careful of your expectations of God. You know, you, you, you see this. The, the, you see people give their, themselves or their lives to God. I'm gonna do this, that, or the other thing. I'm gonna do it this way because that, that's what will glorify God. God doesn't come through on their vision and suddenly God's doubted, not their vision. So, the mindset being off from the beginning. I wanna end with this though. Verse 20 and 21 give us a hopeful, a hopeful ending. He's saying that's not us though. That's not us. Our citizenship Our citizenship is in heaven, verse 20, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Eagerly awaiting, eagerly awaiting the ultimate exchange. That's where we're gonna end. So who not to, who who to follow? Gave those scriptures, who not to follow? And now, hey, something, a hopeful ending here is eagerly wait for the ultimate exchange. You guys ever met a Texan? You know what I'm talking about, Mike? You ever met a Texan? What do Texans care about? What? They care about Texas, don't they? A whole lot. A whole lot. Who's from Texas over here? Come on, Texans. I'm surprised you haven't, like, come up here and punched me already. Okay. You know a Texan because a Texan talks about Texas. It didn't take me long to marry into Texas uh, and uh, realize very quickly that they can fly their flag. Does anybody know, any Texan know this? You know what I'm going to say? As high as the American flag, okay? They like that one, okay? The other one is they can secede from the Union at will, anytime. (laughs) <laughs> Who's writing this stuff down? I, I'm just, you know, Texans, they're going to let you know about that quickly. Uh, they, they just love their state. Texas pride. You see the Texas flag. You go to Texas, flags everywhere. The, star, the Texas star everywhere, right? Probably in every home. There, there's, oh, easy. There's, there's a, there's a uh, star above the mantle, whatever, okay? Um. Texans love their state. And um, you know there's only three power grids in the country? True. Eastern, Western, and Texan. Right? Three power grids. Eastern block, Western block, and Texas was smart enough to get their own or something. Anyway, I love Texas. I really do. And um, I love my wife who's from Texas. But beyond that, you know a Texan because they act like a Texan. 
And Paul is saying here, much more importantly, heavenly citizens act like heavenly citizens. So it would make sense that we're not attracted to earthly things, that our interest is somewhere else, our talk is somewhere else, our boasting is somewhere else. It's not in this body. It's not in my, my stuff. It's not in what I want to do. It's not in my health. He, say, he says here again that we await a Savior. Note that. We await. We await a Savior. That is tough. Waiting for a Savior. But we will get a Savior. Who will what? Verse 21. Who's going to transform our lowly body. Do you, can you comprehend that even for, just, just think about that for three seconds. Okay, good enough. We're not going to be us, but we're going to be us. Okay? The things that are wrong with us now will not be that way in heaven. That's just astounding. That's what you're putting your hope in. Because Paul says, if that's not true, if Christ hasn't raised from the dead, we're the most pitiful people on the planet. But since he has, we eagerly await. I want to compel you, students, this morning Heaven is home. Heaven's home. This is not home. Earth isn't home. Doing things for Christ on earth isn't home. Heaven is home. Being with Christ. Being found in him. Attaining to the resurrection of the dead. To say it in Paul's terms in 3.11. That's what we're looking forward to. So let's live our lives as the citizens we are of heaven where our true love is, our true hope, Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we want to exchange the earthly for the heavenly. We're caught so many times with distractions, with expectations that do not fulfill us. And it reminds us yet again that we're not living for the here and now. We're living for you. Father, I pray that you would bring us in that direction. You would draw us, even this morning, as we gather back from break, Lord, that our hearts would be motivated and passionately pressing toward you, Father, where, where you are and things that are above. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for its enlightenment to our souls. We pray that it would stick in us. In Jesus' name.